Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. It's a sobering reminder in that psalm, the wicked die a godless death, as we just sang but the prosperity of the godly is full and wide. That calls us to confess our faith. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. Hear God's word. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Thus far, the reading of God's word. The Heidelberg Catechism that we'll read in a moment, and the sermon, both are going to wind up in the same place today, in that last verse that I read. You've been saved, you've been converted, because God has good things for you to do. That's what he made you for. The Heidelberg has three sections, sin, salvation, and service. Or, you can put it another way, guilt, grace, and gratitude. And today we start the third section. Having seen that good works are not part of how we are saved, why do we have to do good works after we're saved? Is the gist of the question. Well, God is doing more than just saving his people from hellish judgment. He's also making us like Jesus. Not just redemption, but renewal. Consider an example from our own country's civil war. I hesitated to use this analogy, but I think it's a rough one that is helpful. We set the slaves free, but the country did not do a very good job of renewing them, restoring them with dignity to a place at the table. And we're still dealing with the fallout of that. As a rough parallel, if you only focus on your freedom in Christ and don't focus very much on how to live for him, you're going to run into trouble. So you won't stop sinning completely, but if there isn't a noticeable change in your behavior, if you don't stop doing weed, you don't stop swearing and lying, a list like you see in the Heidelberg Question 87, then people are right to question you about it. So with that in mind, let's confess our own sins. We'll read the first 31 verses, not the whole chapter, of Acts 9. Hear God's word. Then Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. 
So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem? And has come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength, and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord, Jesus, and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, 
they were multiplied. The grass withers and the flower fades, but this word of God stands forever. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. <laughs> you always like the delayed amens from the kids after. There were like three there. That was great. I want to start, kids, by talking to you a minute. Can you think of a time when the sun was so bright that it hurt your eyes? I can think of a time about two or three weeks ago when I was sitting with you at a fellowship meal and the sun was so bright that a lot of you were complaining as you brought your food and sat down next to me. It's like, ah, it hurts my eyes, right? Saul has something of that kind of experience here at the beginning of this story. A bright light shines around him. We don't know if it's the light that knocks him off his horse or or some other uh, force besides the light, but he has this blinding light. And it's something sometimes we can relate to when we're out in the bright, hot sun. Well, what we see here is Christ calling for and bringing about change from our sin to faith and obedience. Jesus does that with Saul of Tarsus, and he does that for each of us. This will be a sermon about conversion and about uh, Saul's extreme case of conversion, but it's something that uh, holds true in a general pattern for every believer. Let's walk through the verses first, and then we'll apply in that kind of fashion. So uh, notice uh, in verse chapter 9, the very first uh, verse, then Saul, uh, and I think in the English Standard Version it says, but Saul, which I like better here, uh, but Saul, because Saul is contrasted to Philip in chapter 8, okay? Philip in chapter 8 has been converting many in Samaria, and the Ethiopian eunuch as well, if you remember from a couple of weeks ago. So chapter 9 is a big transition. The camera shifts from Philip back to Saul. But Saul, he's not converting people to the faith. He's trying to kill people who are of the faith. He thinks he's defending the truth, that he's stamping out an error, but he's against Christ. And it's yet another example, I think, where uh, Luke, in his first volume, He has Jesus saying that they're going to persecute you and they'll think that they're doing God a service in doing that. And that's fulfilled right here with Saul. Saul does that. That's an exact description of Saul. Well, coming to Damascus to do the same, Jesus speaks to Saul, blinds him, the blinding light or something else makes him fall to the ground. Uh, he, he's knocked off his high horse, as we say. That's a, a saying we get from this chapter. Uh, later on, we see the scales fall from his eyes. That's another saying that, that comes from directly from this uh, text. So he's knocked off his horse. Jesus speaks and says, you're persecuting me. Right? That's always pointed out as Saul is persecuting the disciples of Jesus. And by doing that, Saul is persecuting Jesus himself. Because the, the Christians that he's persecuting are the body of Christ. And that's important to keep in mind. There's such a unity that God has forged between his people and his son that if we're persecuting uh, the church, then we're persecuting Jesus himself. And God points out, Jesus points out, how this is a hard road to hoe for Saul to do this. It's hard for you to kick against the goads, he says. Right? It's, it's a bull or an ox being broken in to plow the ground, but, but it resists. And Saul, back in chapter 8, he had heard Stephen's arguments and he couldn't refute them. And so Saul's conscience worked at him as he imprisoned men and women over this. 
So uh, Saul here has zeal without truth. And he talks about that later. I think it's around Romans 10. He speaks of his countrymen, Israel. They have zeal without knowledge. And Saul knows that because that used to be him. He, this is, that's his, the stage of life he's in right now, up until this moment. So Saul, trembling and astonished, says, Lord, who are you? He, he, he's immediately affected by this. And, and his will is subdued, you could say. He has a sense right away of the truth. He lets himself be directed. I think that's pretty important. That's, that's key. Right? That, the principle there is what Jesus prays in Gethsemane. Not what I want, Lord, but what you want. So, so Jesus tells the Father, let this cup pass from me. He tells God what he wants, but then he lets himself be directed by God's will. So in that way, he's following Jesus there. Uh, he's deprived of sight by God. He's blinded here, notice, uh, for three days. And he also, along with that, he deprives himself of food and drink. So that's, that's kind of an outward action of, of saying, I agree with the conviction that you've brought to me, Lord. Right? God blinds him, and so until he has his sight back, he's, he's going to fast and, and agree with this uh, correction that God has brought into his life. And it's, it's quite an irony that Saul is a, a young, zealous leader of others, leading others to destroy Christ's disciples. But now he has to be led helpless by others. That's what happens to Saul. I just wanted to pause there before we go into Ananias at verse 10 uh, for some application of that. And this, this may be kind of a hard word for some of us, but I think it's important. It, it's a hard, it was a hard word for me to write, just thinking for myself, personally. God may discipline you in some way like this to get you on the right path. God may put something hard in your life. For Saul, it was blindness. It was a thorn in the flesh later. Some trouble that God will use to teach you uh, to get rid of thoughts or practices that you need to get rid of, whatever it may be. It doesn't mean that God hates you. It means that he loves you enough to discipline you as his own child. You know, we think of that with uh, parenting. Parents give their children chores, uh, not to be mean to them, uh, not so that the parents can be lazy themselves, not even because the child has sinned, but because the parents know it will be good for them and it will grow them up to be who they should be. And in the same way, God sometimes brings uh, some hardship into our lives. God does that with Saul here and with the thorn in the flesh later. Well, let's move on to Ananias. Verse 10 to 19, we see the, the camera shift once again. Ananias lives in Damascus, the city where Saul has just been led into. Uh, and we have here another direct revelation from God. Uh, and God tells uh, Ananias all about Saul, the street he's on, the house he's in, and he says that he's praying. Uh, when Charles Spurgeon uh, preached on this passage, uh, he put all his focus in this passage, as he was wont to do, uh, on just those three words. <laughs> Spurgeon just would preach on three to five words, basically. So Spurgeon preached on, he is praying. And that's, that's a good focus. The, the first fruit of conversion, the first fruit of coming to faith in Christ, is prayer. 
It's the first thing you're going to do. I've heard, um, I think it was Doug Wilson who said, sometimes when you lead someone to faith and and they come to the Lord, that's all that they say. And their prayer is just something like, doggone it, Lord, I'm here. (laughs) Just, just, I'm here. You, You just present yourself to the Lord and you submit. That's Saul praying, I'm here. God notices that prayer. And he, he knows right where Saul is. I think this is on purpose. The straight street, Judas's house, Saul of Tarsus, all the detail. It's as if God, God notices prayer. It's as if he says, I know that Zach is praying in Howell on Black Eagle Ridge tonight. And he says that of every one of you. He knows where you live, who you are, and he knows the state of your heart. God points it out to Ananias as a sign that Saul has changed. I'm sure Saul went to the temple. This is an interesting thing to think about. Remember, Saul's a Pharisee of Pharisees, right? I'm sure Saul went to the temple twice a day at least when he was a student in Jerusalem of Gamaliel. He, he would go to the temple to pray religiously. And that's a form of worship. You pray at the temple. But now, God points out, now he is praying. Something different going on here. Blind, famished, and thirsty. In Damascus, Saul is praying. And remember, Jesus is the new temple. So Saul doesn't have to be at the temple for the prayer to count. He has met the risen Lord, and he prays to him. So whether it's in Damascus or in Howell or wherever, God hears that prayer. Now, verse 12 is interesting, just a bit of a curiosity. Instead of telling Ananias what to do, uh, he basically says, um, Saul has seen what you're going to do. (laughs) I found that interesting and almost humorous. he, he, He says, Uh, He's seen a man, Ananias, coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. So now Ananias has his marching orders. Like, oh, that's what I need to do. God has seen that that's going to happen. That's me. I'd better go do that. (laughs) Interesting way to direct someone. So that's what uh, Ananias does. Now, now before he does, verse 13, this objection, and this is a key thing. Uh, Ananias objects. Lord, I've heard from many about this man, the harm he has done to your saints. This is an enemy of the church, Saul of Tarsus. And we forget this. We, we just look ahead to the, the rest of the two-thirds of the New Testament that Paul wrote and, and forget that there was this time in the early church when Saul of Tarsus was a tremendous enemy of God's people. I, I tried to think, you, you have to use your imagination sometimes when you're so shaped by one way of thinking about the Bible. So uh, imagine this. If you, most of you probably remember Corrie Ten Boom. Uh, she was uh, in Nazi-occupied Netherlands uh, and had to deal with that and tried to help some Jews escape. It would be like God uh, appearing in a vision to Corrie Ten Boom in Nazi-occupied Netherlands and telling her, I want you to go to the local SS office. And tell the officer in charge about the Jews that you're hiding. Don't worry, Corey, the Lord says to her. 
The officer is a believer now who just turned to the faith, and he's going to help you. That's the kind of situation Ananias was put in here by God. And that takes some faith to believe. I don't quite fault Ananias for his question, at least. But he goes. And it, and it just brings to mind, again, God's election of God's people is a mystery. Right? He, here he chooses a man determined to stamp out Christ's name, to bear Christ's name to many people. And Saul puts it that way. He, he realizes that in Galatians 1.15. God set him apart before he was born and called him by grace at the right time. Paul has caused much suffering. If we move on, we'll, we see that in verse uh, 16. Uh, Saul has caused much suffering of God's people, so he's going to suffer himself. I'll show him how much he has to suffer. Saul's going to stand before kings, uh, Agrippa and probably Caesar himself. And so Ananias goes. He enters the house, lays hands on him, and the first words out of his mouth I find fascinating too, the first two words, Brother Saul. And again, it takes a bit of imagination, but think of who Saul of Tarsus was at this point. It, it would be like, I mean, Saul is virtually a terrorist to the early church. If you remember Osama bin Laden from years ago, it would be like God telling you, bin Laden has just converted, I want you to go and baptize him. And you enter the house and the first thing you say is, Brother Osama. Can you, can you get those words out of your mouth? Ananias does. Um, Ananias receives him as a brother. He, he trusts the vision from Jesus. And one way to apply this is to think of this. Ananias makes room for Saul. He gives him welcome in the early church. And that's something we ought to imitate. Welcome others into relationship with you, even when you aren't sure of their spiritual state. That's something, if you know the name Rosaria Butterfield, that she's done well. Her books are all about hospitality. That's how she was converted as a lesbian liberal college professor, a local uh, Christian pastor just invited her to his home for dinner and they had conversations. Uh, and through that, she was converted. Brother Saul, Sister Rosaria. That there's something, I'm going off script here a bit, but there's something in our, our culture war posture right now that prevents that. We're so opposed to the other side that we're unwilling to consider this as a possibility. And that's, I would say that's the main gist of my message today is God can convert anyone, however unlikely, even Saul of Tarsus, even Rosaria Butterfield. It's astounding when you think of it. Anyway, we'll get back to that in a minute. Ananias lays hands on him. The scales fall from his eyes. He can see, he stands up, the, the detail here is interesting, and the series of events. He receives the Spirit, he submits to baptism, and then he eats. As I read it today, I just thought how interesting it is that baptism comes before eating, when he hasn't eaten for three days. It's like baptism was more urgent <laughs> in some way. That, I'm not sure what to think about that, that just, just occurred to me 20 minutes ago. 
Um, so all of this is happening. And, and notice, again, this all happens after three days of blindness, prayer, no water and food. Now three days later, laying on of hands, the spirit, baptism. There's a strong pattern described here of death and resurrection after three days. It's kind of a typological thing, but I think that's just right there on the surface for us to notice what's going on. Saul confesses Christ. Now, the interesting thing, verse 19, I think it is, what's going to happen um, on the next Sabbath day in the synagogue? And again, we have to use our imagination a bit here because remember what Saul's on the way to do. Saul is a distinguished visitor from Jerusalem. He's going to get to preach in the synagogue because he's a student of Gamaliel, Pharisee of the Pharisees. Everybody knows Saul of Tarsus, star student, even before all this persecuting of the church. And now here he is in our synagogue. What's going to happen? He's come to warn, and warn people against the way, to rebuke the way. And now he's done a 180. And his conversion hasn't changed his personality. He, he's still the type A speech and debater, ready to argue with opponents, run into the mob and try to convert them type of guy. Right? So he preaches as true the way that he came to persecute. He, he puts arguments together. That's the literal of the proving word in verse 22. You see this and this in, in, in our scriptures, and this happened to Jesus. He's doing that kind of argumentation to prove that Jesus was the Christ. The Jews have heard of Saul, and they've heard of this name, Jesus. So what happens? Well, the same thing that happened to Stephen and to Jesus himself. Speaking the truth about Jesus will sometimes get you in trouble, sometimes get you killed. And the Jews rejected Jesus not just while he was on earth, but when he was preached by Stephen, when he was preached by Paul, and by others. So Saul escapes the city at night through a basket. Uh, kids, you have that in your coloring page today. Saul coming down from the basket, in the basket. So uh, Saul escapes Damascus, goes to Jerusalem. Notice verse 26, what Saul does first. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. Or I think the ESV may say he sought out the disciples. Just an aside, that's the mark of a Christian that we need to keep in mind. Christians with true faith seek out those of like heart to be encouraged in the faith. And that's what Saul is doing. Must have been an interesting church membership interview though. Verse 26, yeah, I'd like to join your church. Here I am, Saul of Tarsus. Yeah, right. And they slam the door in his face, basically. He, they, they didn't believe him. It takes Barnabas to sponsor him, to stick up for him. Barnabas is called the son of encouragement in other places. He explains things. And this is a really blessed ministry. Uh, some of you are of, of this nature. Those who stick their neck out to befriend uh, the newcomer. Those who are less known. Those who are weird. Those who are looked at differently. And you stick up for them. You introduce them to others. You bring them into the group. That's an important Good ministry. And Barnabas does that for Saul. They finally come to accept him. Verse 28, he's going uh, in and out among them. That just means he's accepted by the church now. And then we find him next, verse 29, doing the same thing that Stephen was killed for. 
Verse 29, he's disputing with the Hellenists. Same exact thing. I find that fascinating. That's, that's Paul all the way. That, that's Paul in Ephesus wanting to go into the, the rioting mob to preach Christ to them. He, he knows these guys. He knows how they can become violent if they're not convinced, and they probably won't be. And he, he was at Stephen's stoning, holding the cloaks of those who stoned him, and now he's trying to convince those very people who he's holding the cloaks of before, no, really, Jesus is the Christ. Wow. That uh, takes boldness. So Saul started by persecuting outlaw believers. Now he is the persecuted outlaw believer. So just an aside there, I'd say, remember, don't believe it when people say that if you just trust Jesus, then all your troubles will go away. That's, that's not the case, right? Some of your troubles will go away. Your guilty conscience, uh, that, that nagging feeling that life has no meaning, those things go away when you come to faith in Christ and see the world as God reveals it to us in his word. But there's lots of other troubles that will multiply because the world is set against the Lord. So Saul is in that situation. Now verse 30, and this here's where it gets interesting. Saul in verse 30, can't find it. When the brethren found out that the Hellenists wanted to kill him, they bring him down to Caesarea, and they sent him out to Tarsus. <laughs> this is an interesting thing. Uh, Saul is sent away from Jerusalem, and Tarsus, remember, is his hometown. That's where he was born and raised. They sent him home. Not exactly sure why. We can make some theories. But when you come to the Lord in faith... Maybe there are some things that you need to set right with your parents or with your siblings or with your neighbors in, in your hometown. Go back home and start over is, is part of the message. Before you go trying to change the world with your newfound faith, why don't you start at home? That may be one thing that was going on. The, another thing that may be going on is hinted at in the next verse, 31, uh, then the churches had peace and were edified. So a couple of things there. The Sanhedrin's chief prosecutor has converted, Saul, right? It seems like you know, maybe they didn't have another strong personality to carry the torch of persecution. Maybe Gamaliel and his just let him be policy succeeds at this point. Uh, but there's another thing to consider, and I don't know if this is right. Take this with a grain of salt. Maybe Saul just wasn't quite mature enough to argue for the peace, for the faith, peaceably. Maybe he was causing unnecessary trouble, and he needed some, you know, go back home, study the faith. He's in Arabia for three years after this. There's, there's a time of seasoning that Saul needed. I talked about the cage stage last time, I think. Saul's kind of in a cage stage right now, and maybe that's causing unnecessary dissension. Uh, I don't know. Possible. To apply that to today, um, and I'm going to get down to brass tacks here, I discern in the CREC a division among people on this point. Uh, some say, if you're evangelizing, 
if you're arguing for truth in the public square, there's probably never a wrong time or a wrong way to do that. Invite the trouble. That, that's one way to come at things. Others say, well, there can be a wrong time and a wrong way to do it, so we should pause and think about how we take the gospel on the road. And that, that question is something we should keep discussing. Uh, I guess I'll leave that at that, but just take another parenting example to understand what's going on here. You know, think about two toddlers, two brothers who are fighting, and, and it comes to blows, right? And mom or dad step in, they sort it out, and sometimes they do that wrongly. Sometimes mom and dad get that wrong, and the bad guy they actually think is the good guy, right? That's, that's Stephen disputing with the Jews, right? It comes to blows, and it turns out the good guy gets stoned. And then 10 minutes later, the brothers are fighting again. And mom and dad have to come at it again. That's Saul disputing with the Hellenists just a chapter later. And then mom and dad just separate them and send them to their rooms. <laughs> right? That's the church leaders sending Saul home. That might be a rough equivalent of what's going on. But the peace is temporary, notice. Look, you got the whole rest of the book of Acts where you see Paul going into the synagogue and creating a division. And that's what Jesus said was going to happen anyway. So you have a temporary peace here, but the gospel does need to go forward, and that is going to divide the Jewish world. It will turn the world upside down. So uh, that takes us uh, through uh, the verses. Let's consider now Saul's conversion here. Number one, I would say, expect the conversion of unbelievers that you know. Pray for it. That God works that way. Unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God, Jesus says. And God the Father is subduing the enemies of Christ under his feet. And one of the main ways he does that is converting them to the faith. You know, when we sing Psalm 2, it, it's, it sounds almost harshly militant, right? Kiss the sun, um, it, the, the, the broken pottery is going to be destroyed. And sometimes that happens, and, it, and people are shattered, and lost. But very often what's happening instead there is there's a resurrection after that pottery is shattered and they're put back together in Christ's image. And there's conversion. That's also Psalm 2 being fulfilled. The, the nations being given as an inheritance. Not to just destroy them, but to redeem them. And that's what Jesus is doing. Conversion. Conversion's a loaded word in, in our church history, I know, but it just means change. We have conversion charts, right, from metric to English, or, or when you're in the kitchen, you, you convert from tablespoons to teaspoons and back, right? That, that's how simple it is for God to change a heart. God converts Saul of Tarsus here, and that's what we're talking about, conversion to Christ, you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2. That's the change. It's regeneration, to give it the theological language. The rebirth of life in us. And that new life responds to God in Christ. It, it realizes what sin is to God. It grieves and repents for it. And we acknowledge Christ to be the Lord and the King, and that we need his work applied to us if God is to turn away his wrath from us. We need that kind of conversion in our lives. 
It's a sovereign work of God. That's the third thing. Uh, Saul, remember, is not seeking God. He's headed to Damascus to persecute the church. He, he is not seeking God at all. He's looking to hurt God, Christ's people. And, and on the way, Christ stops him in his tracks. Talk about a sovereign work of God. So, faith doesn't bring about a conversion in Saul. God's conversion, his revelation, comes first. And then Saul believes and prays. And that's how it is for all of us. Christ died while we were yet sinners. Romans 5.8 And he regenerates us while we are still rebelling against him. And, and that's where I love the metaphors that the scriptures use. Regeneration, rebirth, be born again. I mean, that isn't just some slogan. That takes a lifetime of meditation to think about. What does that mean to be born again? Well, think about being born the first time, right? You didn't ask to be born the first time. <laughs> and in the same way, you're born again the second time without being asked. God chooses who he chooses and has mercy on them. And so it is when we're born again. We, you know, There's way more to think about there, but I don't have time. Think of being born the first time. What happens at the end of the process? You cry out. We use the lungs God gave us and formed in us. And when people around us hear that cry, they're relieved. Oh, good. Everything is functioning as it should. Right? Same with our rebirth. We use the faith God gives us. That's how others know that we're alive and healthy. And they weep for joy. Being born again. Now, does our conversion need to be as dramatic as Saul's was? Uh, the answer there is no. Scripture often gives us extreme examples to encapsulate pretty much anything that will happen in our lives. And this is an example of that. Saul's conversion is so extreme, uh, from persecutor to uh, apostle, right? Knocked off his high horse and everything. But there's a pattern there that applies to, to all of us, however less dramatic it might be. And that is that Jesus speaks to us, we hear and understand and submit to it, we believe. And that's what Saul does. So, we don't have to have a time of of rebellion, of being against Christ, to know for sure that we are believers now. We don't have to try to gin up an emotional conversion experience. Or or say, it was this date, I remember the date. Uh, I don't remember the date that I was converted. I have one or two experiences, a handful of experiences that were pretty significant. But I'm not sure exactly when uh, the moment of my conversion. And we don't need to know that. We know that we're trusting in Christ now. So that's key. Uh, We're also raising covenant children in the Lord. Must they be converted? That's something Reformed theologians like to discuss at great length. The answer is yes and no. (laughs) it's a blessing to have the heritage to miss any rebellious phase of life. Uh, We aren't second-class citizens, Christians, if we miss a dramatic conversion. You know, if you've grown up in the covenant so far, trying to love the Lord, obey your parents, coming to church, listening your best at family devotions, must you be converted and changed? Well, there is a sinful nature inside of you that you were born with. You need to reject that and fight every day to put that away. Do you need to know the point in time when, that, when you did that first? No. Do you, know, you need to know your most recent resolution against sin? No. 
you don't have to know the exact time the sun rose up to know that it's up. So if you observe yourself now trusting Christ, resisting sin, loving others, then you can assume that you are one of Christ's people. You are converted. So it isn't the presence of sin that condemns us. It's, it's turning away from Christ's salvation and lordship. It's letting sin win, not caring to repent of it or try to reject it. So kids, you need to be committed to love God with all your heart. You have to admit that God hates your sins. You need to repent of them. You need to seek forgiveness for them at the cross of Jesus and trust God to forgive you. That's conversion from spiritual death that we are all born in. But you may not have noticed the change. That, that may be a, a year or two behind you. And that, that's fine. You've been uh, disciplined for your sins since you can remember and taught to fight it always. Uh, and you can't remember that time when Christ was not exalted and loved by your parents and by you. That's good and fine. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus. So I guess my point here is to focus on discipleship. Uh, conversion uh, doesn't keep going back to the moment you got saved. It, it, it presses on to the goal of the upward calling. You know, a parent that's fixated on the birth of their child, you know, if every night uh, young parents uh, go back and look at the baby pictures to when they were born, and, and now their boy is 10 or he's 15, and all they do every night is go and look at the baby pictures, they're not going to raise that boy very well. You need to deal with them as they are now. There's discipleship after conversion. So uh, that discipleship is, is a calling. And I want to close by talking about how conversion leads from consecration to calling. Three C's there. When Saul was converted, he had a unique ministry in the history of the church. Uh, he, he goes to Arabia. He is the apostle to the Gentiles. But each of us... Saul's the extreme example, maybe. But each of us are called to something because we're converted. We're all chosen vessels to bear Christ's name. So what that means for us is that a sermon on conversion like this isn't irrelevant if you're already a believer. Every day there's going to come moments when you're called upon to trust the Lord to, or, or to walk in your own wisdom as the sin within fights back. So conversion leads to consecration or, or purifying ourselves. And conversion leads to our calling. You know, think of Paul singing that hymn we sang earlier. I'll, I'll close with this and then one Bible verse. It's the, I think it's the climax of the hymn. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. Think of Saul singing this on the Damascus road. My chains fell off. My heart was free. The best commentary on Acts and Paul, by the way, is by F.F. F. Bruce, and it's called A Heart Set Free. It's a great book. Great book. My heart was free. And then these words, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Freedom in Christ leads to following We so have to rewire our brains about that because we Americans think that freedom is an end in itself. It is not. God frees us to follow him. And that's Ephesians 2 once again. 
By grace you're saved through faith, not of yourselves, not of works. And then the very next verse, God made you to do good works. He prepared them from the foundation of the world. He made you for this. So let's, in the freedom of Christ, follow him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, we ask that your spirit and your word would do its work in our hearts. Apply to each of us as we need to be more like Christ. Lord, some of us need to hear that we are free. We've been trying to earn your favor for so long. Lord, let us come to you in faith and receive your free grace. And Lord, others of us need to get back on the right path. We've been taking liberties with your grace. And Lord, we ask that you would keep us faithful and following you. We thank you that you are a God who deals with each of your people as we need. So do that work, we pray, Lord, as we continue in our worship of you, as we come to your table. Feed us, purify us, strengthen us to follow you faithfully. We pray in the name of Jesus, the ever-living word, and we sing as he taught us to pray. Titus 3 for our communion exhortation. Hear God's word. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Thus far the reading of God's word. What we celebrate at this table is the grace of God. Grace isn't just being nice to others, smoothing the way, being tactful. Grace is getting favor when you deserve condemnation. This, t- this table beautifully shows both. Scripture says that this cup is a participation in Christ's blood. And we see here the price of our salvation. Jesus had to drink the cup of judgment and wrath that the Father gave him. And he drank it all. In his death and resurrection three days later, that cup was converted into a cup of blessing and life for us. We deserved a cup of wrath but we're given a cup of life. That's grace. The kindness and love of God our Savior has appeared to us, saving us and washing us, not by anything we did, but by His mercy. It was the same love, we like to sing, that spread the feast, that sweetly drew us in, else we would still refuse to taste and perish in our sin. So come to the Lord Jesus. These are gifts of God for the people of God. The body of Christ, broken for you. Let us pray. Lord God, we give you thanks for your word that we have heard. We give you thanks as we gather around this table and receive bread and wine from your hand. 
For you are a God who assures your people, who not only proclaims good news and salvation to the poor, but you give them uh, daily bread and you give your people uh, a way day by day, week by week, to know that you have given us Jesus and he will never be taken from us. So thank you for this bread that we partake of now, for the ways in which it points us to your son. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.